Greg, I want to thank you for taking time out to talk about uh, your new film, Guns of Eden. Uh, you know, I got a chance to watch it, and I, I, I dug it quite a bit. It was not exactly what I was expecting, because uh, I usually try to go into these films cold. But uh, yeah, I, I was very, uh, very entertained. It, it was definitely a, a surprise. Uh, why don't you uh, first? We'll just start off with a. Uh, give a little synopsis of what Guns of Eden is about in case my listeners aren't aware. Um, a post office worker gets the Christmas spirit when... No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Guns of Eden is about a uh, female cop suffering from PTSD who goes camping with some friends and they witness an execution and find themselves hunted by a militia. So it's sort of a uh, spiritual hybrid of deliverance and uh, first blood and shout at the devil. <laughs> that's a yeah, that's an excellent race way. with the devil. Race with the devil. Uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely an interesting film. Now, where did the idea for this come from? Was it uh, current hot topics in uh, our uh, our culture today, or where did it come from? Um, although it plays like a very timely film, it's not at all because I wrote the script back in 1996. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I just knew I wanted a female action hero running around the woods being chased by guys with guns. And I had to figure out who those guys were. And I, you know, in my mind, it was just a ridiculous idea that there were these militia guys out there who would be after her. Who, who knew? Yeah, who knew? <laughs> uh, so, did you make? It, did you tailor it at all, or was it pretty much the what you way you conceived it back in '96? Um, almost everything that was in that original script is in the current script. I added a few more character moments. About the only change that I made to uh, to to make it relevant is that preacher, the sheriff mm -hmm. who's behind everything. Originally, I had him really being um, sort of a religious gun nut. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the idea to, to make to satirize gun nuts and uh, <laughs> uh, religious extremists. Sure. And uh, I just decided it was a little more interesting that if instead of him believing all that, he was really using the beliefs of some of the people around them to motivate them. Sure. Uh, to make him more of a manipulator. A guy who didn't really believe in the things he said. That's about the as far as I went into uh, contemporary dilemmas. <laughs> well, it pays off, especially for your Sheriff Preacher character, uh, which I love that name, too. Sheriff Preacher is just <laughs> very, very fitting uh, for him, uh, for Bill Kennedy. Did you did you have him in mind uh, or actors in mind uh, when you finally you decided to make this film or, or did you do a lot of uh, hunting for talent? You mean when I decided I was actually going to make the film? Right. Yep. Decades later after yep. I wrote it. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really have anyone in mind. I kind mm -hmm. of thought from the get go that it would be good to get Lynn, Lynn Lowry to play her character but otherwise no i didn't have anyone in mind in fact um you know i did the film widow's point right uh with craig sheffer and if mm -hmm. this had been a much bigger film i was thinking that uh, maybe i would cast him mm -hmm. as the preacher role oh that would have been definitely interesting i i got a chance to see uh widow's point and uh yeah i could <laughs> i could see him pulling that off that'd be a that'd definitely be an interesting choice for sure now uh for your lead uh, actress uh, Alexandra, was it? Uh, was it? Did it take a long pro uh, process to find her, or were you? Were you? Uh, did you? Were you able to find her fairly quick? Um, you know, about the normal time. I, sure. I put out the the word to some mm -hmm. filmmaker friends that I was looking for somebody, what I wanted, and some recommendations came in, and she was one of those recommendations. And as it turns out, she had submitted um, her information to us once before hmm. for the project I didn't get off the ground because of COVID. I, I had a whole different film that I hmm. expected to be doing um, a year and a half, two years ago that didn't happen because I couldn't do a cabin in the woods type <laughs> horror film sure. during COVID. But this action script, 90% of it's outdoors, that was something we could safely do. 
Um, I think I auditioned maybe four actresses that I've worked with in the past or, or new. Um, and she was the one person that I had not worked with before uh, that I auditioned. But we pretty much knew as soon as we saw her that she was the direction we were going in. Yeah, you know, you need a you need a physical person mm-hmm. for this role, obviously. And um, being an out of towner, I just wanted to <laughs> make sure that she was cool with uh, coming to Buffalo from New York City, staying here. Mm-hmm. We didn't know where, um, and dealing with a lot of uh, rigorous activities in the woods. Sure. Um, you know, under indie circumstances. I mean, this is a very low budget film. Mm-hmm. Well, we got a lot done for the money, but it's a very low budget. <laughs> I will say it doesn't look low budget uh, at all. Uh, so you uh, accomplished that well. I, I really like the overall look of the film for sure. And, and the location you picked as well for it. Uh, so COVID uh, did play a, a, a big part in uh, where you shot this and, and doing this script finally. Or, you know, what, what kind of pulled the trigger for, for you taking and dusting off the script to make it finally? I had pulled it out a few years earlier, Mm -hmm. thinking that maybe it was something that I would like to try to do just to do something, you know, a little different, something that would be fun to try. Um, But it wasn't on the front burner, so to speak. And, uh, you know, once COVID COVID settled in and we were dealing with some other health issues with my daughter, uh, it was starting to look like it would be three years between films for me. And usually I'm able to do one every two years. So uh, this was the only one I had in that drawer that could be done (laughs) under this this situation. And I really wanted to make a movie. And uh, that's why I was willing to do the crowdfunding thing. And, you know, we just pulled out the stops to make it happen. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) it just, uh, when you mentioned that it was a 96 script that, uh, that uh, blows me away because I just uh, rewatched Slime City last night uh, and seeing where uh, that film, when you started, you know, what that film is to go to Guns of Eden is a big kind of jump in the type of film uh, that they are. Uh, were you, when you first came up, were you looking to branch out from just horror when you came up with it or? Uh Mark, when it comes to films, I'm a fan of the three B's. Horror, action, and sci-fi. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> to me, they're all sort of the same thing, and sure. I've just never quite gone in this direction before. Mm-hmm. I like B films. I love them. Uh, I don't expect I'll ever do anything but a B film, but it was conceived to be that. And and one of the reasons it went into the drawer is because once I had written it, it had become a little more than what I expected. I didn't think I was going to have 50 characters running around with guns, and I didn't <laughs> think there was going to be a helicopter sequence. And when I wrote the script, I lived in New York City, and the thought of traveling who knows where to find locations mm-hmm. – with a whole cast and crew on a low budget, it was just, uh, it wasn't practical. And then living here in Buffalo, where we do have locations nearby, by, it suddenly became practical, all except for the helicopter. <laughs> for the, the helicopter showing up, I was like, wow, they, they got even a helicopter for it. I, uh, <laughs> the, the logistics for it, uh, you know, was that one of the biggest challenges uh, for you for doing this was, was uh, coordinating all that? Um, making sure that my friend Chris Cosgrave, who uh, shot the film, Mm -hmm. making sure that he could convincingly take his 15-inch toy helicopter Uh and create a special effects scene so that it looked real, that was a challenge (laughs) in coordinating. But as far as I know, he shot it in his backyard and, uh, you know, no, it wasn't that much work. (laughs) It didn't drive our insurance up or anything. Well, well, you fooled me. You used your movie magic for sure, because I thought for sure that was a real, real helicopter. Well, it looks great. And I assume um, I I think that there's something called a digital skin. Sure. Which is like detail you you can lay on stuff. I I think he he did that to make it look Mm -hmm. more realistic. But he did do a great job. It's totally convincing. We knew it had to be convincing. 
And if I'd known how good it was going to look, I would have done more with it. As <laughs> sure. it was, I just wanted that one sequence, and I knew we'd cut it into a trailer. And so, uh, well, yeah, the movie magic worked for me because I I was very I, I'm impressed that <laughs> it was just a, a special effect. So, uh, I worked on a uh, much higher budget action film mm -hmm. that had CGI helicopters, and sure. I I thought I was looked. You know, you look at it, you're like, oh, that's obviously CGI. Right. It doesn't really take you out of the movie, but you are aware, oh, that's obviously CGI. Um, and I, I know we did better with ours. Yeah, uh, I've seen I've seen some uh, stuff or uh, uh, people trying to make a car look like a cop car. Uh, they lay a skin over it. You're like, yeah, that's that's not a cop car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we we did a a miniature car too. The uh, the SUV that blows up behind mm -hmm. Alexandra at the end when she runs around. Sure, that was also a a miniature car that he just <laughs> blew air under, so it flipped and he slowed it down and added uh, smoke and stuff. And so those were our two miniatures gags, and they both worked really well. Yeah, they uh, they're very convincing. That's for sure. Now, have had you worked with? Uh... The individual often uh, do you have a crew that you normally work with regularly when you're making your films well he has done uh visual effects i mean he did work on widow's point mm -hmm. killer rack and johnny gruesome so as long as i've known him i've been exploiting him to the best of <laughs> my ability using the best of his abilities yeah no um <clears throat> when he shot the film because I just thought I needed somebody who loved action films like he does. It's sort of his language and who just for fun, he was like doing test footage of, of some of the sure. things he could do with the miniatures. And I had seen a short film he had done in which the same helicopter 15 years ago was shooting at him in a parking lot. And I was like, Hmm, <laughs> this is, this is going to work. Uh, and no time uh from the time we decided to do this movie that i yep. say we better just cut the helicopter out it was right. never never a question helicopter was, was gonna was, happen who right? plays megan <laughs> Forrest, and and how do we do the helicopter those were the two big questions uh, the helicopter is gonna happen regardless and and I, I it adds a lot to it i mean you get the, the threat from above obviously uh not just on the ground and uh, you do a lot of creative things with your action sequences. Uh, how long did it take to prepare for those? Because some of those were were a bit involved. Well, I mean, I had the script since 96. Well, that's true. Some of the action <laughs> changed here and there. But preparation is, is an important part of the process for mm -hmm. me. Um, my wife and I do most of the uh, pre-production work. So we do the work of at least four people on a small film sure um so we give ourselves a little extra time so that we can do that all ourselves and chris was involved you know as soon mm -hmm. as i knew i was going to do the film he was a key part of it um we visit he and i visited a lot of the locations and we would talk very generally you know about yeah. what we were going to do and there were some scenes where we were able to shoot exactly what we discussed and there were some scenes where when we got to the location you know, once you see the rocks and the trees and the this and the that, you give yourself the freedom to play around. And um, but there's never enough time to do anything that you want to do. That's that's <laughs> the fact of low budget filmmaking. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I hear from a lot of folks is that you, you always could use more time and money, of yeah. course, uh, for the film. They go hand in hand. They do. But, you know, uh, limited budget makes you resourceful. Uh, I guess there's there is one positive with that, even though uh, you would love to have a, a larger budget. But uh, for what you have here, I think I think it works really well, especially with the cast you have of of your characters, your different groups of individuals. <laughs> uh, you, you had me laughing when uh, you got the militia together, and suddenly they were various different groups. Almost yeah. <laughs> like superhero uh, villain groups of sorts. The inspiration there was actually the Warriors. In the yeah. Warriors, you have all those very distinct gangs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you know, they could all just be Meal Team Six, like we've seen on TV, or we could do variations and make them a little more interesting and, and hopefully make it fun for the audience figuring out who they were exactly. 
yeah i i enjoyed it and i also enjoyed the uh, infighting and everything the banter with them uh you know i always it's one of those things where you always if you have everybody getting along together all the time i think it doesn't land quite as well with especially your villains as when you have some conflict which uh you obviously have in here uh you know uh it, it where did the idea for each of those groups come from did you just uh because you mentioned you do enjoy genre uh films the the sci-fi uh you know horror genre uh where did the idea for the different groups come from pulled them right out of my ass <laughs> uh <laughs> I'm I'm a very uh, sure. intuitive writer, and I make mm -hmm. stuff up as I go along when I'm sure. writing, and you know that's just what came out of the noggin. <laughs> uh, the, this I think the biggest surprise for me was the stealth group. I I uh, everybody else I'm like okay I could see, and then you got kind of the the, the ghost group in there, and I was like, yeah. once they showed up, I really I really got. I'm like okay, this is gonna get really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> The idea was, uh, you know, sort of like a kung fu film. Yeah. When you, suddenly yeah. you got those guys, but also a little bit of uh, the Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. You know, you get into that whole thing about where the invaders and they have the home turf. And Chris and I discussed that. And then he did the, the edit of them, the way they kind of disappear yeah. before they reach the trees and create that really creepy feeling. And uh, so I give him credit for that. <laughs> yeah they were they were definitely a creep the, the creepiest of the group uh and and the character that stood out for me though i lynn lowry is was awesome that you were able to get her for the film she really made the most of of her character uh you know how was that <laughs> shooting those seeds with lynn uh and and what she brought to the was it francis i believe her name was yeah, francis is the character mm -hmm. and she's She's supposed to be like the woman on the prairie, mm -hmm. you know, the old frontier woman. And she's got a, a tough edge to her. And, uh, you know, when when Sheffer read the script, because we're friends, he mm -hmm. said he thought she was the most interesting character. And I kind of vacillated whether or not to leave that character in or not. Sure. Because um, you could pull her out of the script and still make the story work pretty right. much mm -hmm. as is. But I wanted somebody to have some intel on the history of the, the whole thing i i didn't want to lose that that crazy history that these are descendants of the minutemen and stuff um and i've worked with her a couple of times before as a producer mm -hmm. um i was associate producer on model hunger right and i was producer of sam qualiana's the legend of six fingers which is a found footage monster movie that she and debbie rashan are both in um so I, I wanted to work with her with me directing for a change. As it turns out, it was a real easy part because we had a, a luxurious house to shoot in for our cabin in the woods, as opposed to some of the other locations where we drove an hour and a half and there were no amenities out there at all. Um, and I had my shot so well planned out that we really burned through all four of those scenes. It's one mm -hmm. sequence, but it's four scenes. And it's, you know, eight or nine pages, which right. is a healthy amount to shoot in one day. But we did it all in about eight hours and still had time left over to do some other stuff. And Lynn was a little bit like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, bring me out for more. And I said, well, the script didn't really call for more. Yeah. But she uh, she really nailed that part well. I, I, I really liked her character and the difference between her character, the, the seasoned uh, uh person who's experienced of uh taking care of herself and not afraid to use a gun and uh megan who is you know a little bit newer on the survival end and the way they play right. off each other there is actually some thematic tissue there that you mm -hmm. picked up on that uh in the original draft of the script i did have a different ending that sort of played more into to billy jack territory mm -hmm. which is she does do an act that you're not sure if she's going to do it or not at the end. She gets away, but now these guys are all out there looking for her in the real world. So she basically becomes the hermit like Francis. Right. And she just goes home and sits in her chair every night with her shotgun waiting to see if anyone comes knocking. <laughs> so there was, there was a, uh, a, a little bit of a, a correlation there at one point. 
Well, yeah, you still feel it between the two, and then Lynn just seemed to elevate the scenes, and Alexandra really. I, I those are my a couple of my favorite scenes in this film is just those two uh, talking and and Lynn. Uh, giving the history of the Minutemen, which I, <laughs> I I thought was really interesting. I also think at that point in the script, so much has happened. There's been so mm-hmm. much action, and we've gotten rid of some of our other characters in fairly dramatic moments that the audience needs a breather. Mm-hmm. So it's good to bring in an issue, uh, a character that she can relate to and actually have a conversation with. Otherwise, she's just running around waiting for people to show up for her to kill, you know? Right. It, it it felt good to have her have a sort of a pseudo ally. She, you know, she's, she doesn't exactly, uh, the Francis character felt like, you know, she's still on her own, but she doesn't exactly care for the militia folks either. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, I just, I, that whole section, especially when she got to interact with, uh, Sheriff Preacher, when they show up on the land and she pulls out the, uh, the rifle, which uh, you do have a lot of guns in this, obviously yes. guns of Eden. Uh, <laughs> it lives up to its title. It it definitely lives <laughs> up to its title, uh, you know, and guns being prevalent, especially on set and that in the uh, in Hollywood and that, especially with recent uh, events that happen on even, you know, uh, a bigger Hollywood sets and that. Uh, were there, you know, what kind of preparation do you take for safety wise as far as do you get look for actors who are comfortable with using gun props? Uh, you know, uh, were were those real guns or were they all just uh, uh, prop guns? We paid for every actor to go take six lessons each at the local gun. No, <laughs> uh. <laughs> I didn't think that, but you know, I just was wondering what kind of precautions of that uh, are taken because it, you know, I, I guess people don't think about that angle of it when you watch an action film. Um, I take. Uh, set safety very seriously and you know when I'm not doing my own films I work on other films for other people I've been an assistant director for Chris Ray many times Fred Olin Ray's son he's done a lot of action films before the pandemic I had worked on a film for him called Assault on VA 33 oh okay and all the guns that were used in that film were used in my film because I (laughs) took custody of them when he went back to LA I'm, I'm holding them they're not all the guns we use, but all right. those guns did make it into the film. But from working on those films, I mean, I've learned what the proper procedures are and what the drills are. And we followed those. And uh, it was almost comical on set because the, the the guy who was my production designer, Brian Varney, he was also the wrangler for the weapons. Oh, okay. And you do a safety check on every single gun when they come out. You do it, you pass it around. Everyone's able, encouraged to check it out. And it's a lot of guns. And then if somebody has to go to the bathroom, they turn it in. We go through it again. You know, an actor loves to walk around with a handgun on their hip, but we don't allow that. We right. collect them. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of time is spent going through the sure. drill. And, you know, by halfway through the shoot, everybody could do Brian's spiel for him, which was good. <laughs> Um, and then the rust shooting with Alec Baldwin happened like a week or a month after we wrapped. Sure. And everybody, you know, was posting, oh, I'm so glad you guys took all this extra right. care. So. Uh, yeah, it's good that you had that. And I was just curious at it because, uh, yeah, with that being a hot topic uh, for sure with what happened with uh, the Baldwin incident that uh, I was just curious with that. Because now uh, for some of the gun action uh did you use special effects and then some were blanks or uh you know for for the shooting angle of it because uh i was just curious on on how that was handled uh was it a mixture so on my second film which was called undying love it was sort Mm -hmm. of a vampire noir film i used a gun that shot blanks and we had no set safety people because we didn't know better at that time um we kept the gun away and, and pulled sure. it out at the last minute. We shot that one on film. Mm-hmm. And what I learned is that you have to do, anytime you use gunplay, you have to do three takes. Because if the character shoots more than once, the flash is so fast that it may actually occur in the line mm. between the frames and mm-hmm. you lose it. And that happened on brain damage, which I worked on. Um, oh. And one of the takes is a shot and you don't see anything happen. Sure. 
Well, it did happen on set. It just didn't register on the film. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since they started doing digital technology, ever since The Crow, I've always said there's no reason to ever use blanks. Sure. There's nothing gained from it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's safer to use the other ones, and that should be all there is to it. Mm-hmm. But also you have a little more control with what the look of those flashes are. Sure. You have to have a talented person like Chris Cosgrave doing the muzzle flashes and stuff, but it's not hard. And uh, I think when we did when we did our crowdfunding campaign, we said we were going to do some practical squib hits and stuff, and there just wasn't time. And mm-hmm. now, as it turns out, I don't think they've passed it. But the uh, there's a petition of sorts, not, or or maybe it's a, a voting measure is going on among the uh, cinematographers guild. Mm-hmm. And they actually plan to um, make it impossible to shoot blanks anymore. Really? They want they want all shots to be digital, mm-hmm. and they want all blood packs to also be digital. They don't want anything shooting at the camera anymore. Wow. So um, <laughs> hopefully digital blood effects are going to continue to evolve and get better, because yeah. I think that's what we're going to see from now on. Wow, that's except that's, on little, you know, yeah, outlaw films, like <laughs> little little renegade we films. Did, we did yeah. digital too, so. mm-hmm. yeah, and the digital effects I think uh, work, especially the muzzle flashes in that uh, as well. I I don't think there was really any uh, curtain pulled back, except for maybe when she pulls out the really big gun, which I was hoping she would do in the film when you when you showed it. Uh, uh, but, uh, on the whole, I think, uh, the technology is there now to where they can do that for both squibs and for, uh, for muzzle flashes. But, uh, I think blood is a lot harder, obviously, cause it's a liquid, right? And it's tougher. It is a liquid and it's very time consuming. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, this is why Romero had to do survival of the dead with digital effects. Right. You know, and fans complained about that, but it's just, it takes so long to mm-hmm. set one of these things and get it. And then if you have to reset, that's where the time disappears and you don't make your days cleaning everything up and resetting it. That's, that's where the, uh, the loss comes in. But if I can step back one second, sure. That gun that we used in the truck, the really big gun, sure. That is, uh, that's the same mini gun, I believe, that they, they had on Predator. You know, oh, nice. Yeah. Track. Yeah. Except for for our version, Chris took some PVC pipe and extended the barrels to make it even bigger, more ridiculous. But that one is actually an electric gas-powered gun. And the muzzle flash coming out of that one was real. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, well, for that one, yeah, I could see. The one I was thinking of was the... uh... The bigger I forgot. I don't know my guns very well. I apologize, but neither do I. Uh, uh, <laughs> the The larger one where she uh, riddled uh, it, it was the handheld one, the, the one she carried, not the one on the on the truck. I love the one that was mounted on the truck when that came out. Uh, that I love action films, so when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, this is really gonna be fun!" And you peppered the house. We're, we're uh, peppering the house. Was that all digital effects too, or or did you have uh, not all? Um... Chris also came up with this idea of taking paper bullet holes oh, and and adding them because otherwise he would be adding it all digitally. So right. he added as much stuff practically, mm-hmm. uh, including on the barns and in the car at the end when she was shooting stuff up. So a lot of those things were just taped on. Wow. And then he enhanced it with more that appear in during sure. the course of the frame. And then you have the smoke added. And so, yeah, I, that, you're just blowing my mind right now because a lot of that looked like where you riddled the house. I looked at that going, Oh man, they, they really shot up, you know, with, <laughs> with uh, you know, explosive little bitty explosives in that they really shot up the house, but that was all paper, uh, which, yeah, that just, that's very impressive. <laughs> the, the term used to be toothpick and rubber band ingenuity in <laughs> Cinemagic magazine. That That's what you talk about. And that's something that Chris excels at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons I got so much out of him on this is that because he's an action fan, Mm -hmm. this is stuff that he wants to be doing. Sure. Um, I'm not sure the killer rack, you know, cleaning. (laughs) I'm not sure that that's ever anything that he expected to be in his wheelhouse or to be explaining to his kids when they get older. But um, (laughs) guns is something that is what he wants to be doing. Uh, Killer rack was a fun film. I enjoyed that one as well quite a bit. (laughs) Well, 
this is my living room behind me. This yep. is actually a room between my living room and my dining room. <laughs> and the lights are down because I glow on sure. camera, but the walls are painted the same red that they were painted when we shot Killer Rack in here. This was Debbie Downer's apartment. We put up walls to make the house seem smaller so it sure. could be her apartment, but this is where it all happened. So it's seven years that we've been living with this color scheme. <laughs> I need to do another film. Guns of Eden obviously didn't fit the bill right. that we could shoot partly in here so the production can cover a, a fresh coat of paint. <laughs> so, so you could use that to help uh, repaint your room. I get you. That's production that's, design. That's right. <laughs> And, and you benefit from that as well. So that, uh, yeah, Killer Rack, I enjoyed uh, quite a bit, especially the special effects and such that you had in that one. Uh, that was just one of those to where it took me back. You could tell uh, your love of the genre uh, really came through on that film. <laughs> and you can see, if, if you look at all of the, my films, every one of them is very different from the others, right. including... Mm -hmm. Slime City and Slime City Massacre. Slime City Massacre is a sequel, but it's so different from the first one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm always trying to to do something fun and, and different. And and right now, uh, Showdown in Yesteryear is on the film festival circuit. And I only mm -hmm. wrote that one, but that's a, a Western where a guy travels back in time from our time to the past. And it's sort of like, you know, Back to the Future 3 with that type of sure. fish out of water. Mm -hmm sense of humor but it evolves into an actual western you know a real shoot 'em up type western and i've always wanted to do a western so it was really fun to write that yeah it, uh what would you say is one of your favorite westerns um the outlaw josie wales mm. is probably my favorite i've probably seen it 50 times i saw it three times in the theater and i still watch it and think it's so well directed and, you know, that's a film where Philip Kaufman, who wrote the script, he was supposed to direct it. Right. But he was taking so long and getting so many <laughs> takes, which isn't how Eastwood works. Right. That Eastwood had him fired and took over directing himself. And because of that, the Directors Guild passed a rule saying that if a director was fired, the actor could not take over directing. <laughs> and because of that rule, when they did Tombstone, which would also be a favorite of mine, right. um, they got rid of the direct, they fired the director again. Mm -hmm. Kurt Russell couldn't take over directing. So they brought George Pan Cosmatos in and he basically kind of directed as Kurt Russell told him to. Kurt Russell basically <laughs> directed the film, sure. but couldn't take credit for it because of this DJ rule because of what Clint Eastwood did. <laughs> Clint Eastwood just ruined it for everyone. No, uh... <laughs> There's none of that funny business on a Greg Lamberson film. Let me tell you, the guy who starts directing finishes directing, and no movie star subverts his will. <laughs> you definitely, you rule with an iron fist, right? <laughs> I like to think of Velvet Touch, but, oh, you know, whatever it takes. <laughs> Yeah, I've actually got uh, the soundtrack to the Outlaw Josie Wales on vinyl. I listen to quite often. It's really uh, oh, interesting. I mean, I know that soundtrack very well, mm -hmm. and I never even thought about listening to it. Lonesome Dove is one that I listen to a lot. Oh, that's cool. That's by, uh, yeah, Basil Paul Doris, who did uh, Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, which... I listen to a lot of soundtracks when I write. Oh, you I. I'm a huge soundtrack nut. If it's not movies, uh, it's the music to the movies. Uh, and, and Conan the Barbarian is one of my all-time favorite soundtracks. Uh, that's, yeah. my, that's my Desert Island soundtrack. I tell people that. And they're like, yeah, but what about Star Wars and John Williams? I'm like, if you watch Conan, I'm like, the music is such a part of that film. Yeah. Yet it also stands on its own. It really grabs your gut in a way that, I mean, Williams is awesome, but it really grabs your gut in a way his films don't. I find myself, like, I'll be washing dishes and this beautiful melody will come into my head and I'll realize it's the love theme from Conan the Barbarian and then I'll laugh. <laughs> oh, that's that's a great theme. Uh, you know, and that's, that is one of those soundtracks where it serves as an integral part, but also I listen to it on it. It just stands up on its own. Um you know, and, and yeah, it's it's definitely a favorite. Destroyer, my buddy and I uh, are at odds with Conan the Destroyer soundtrack. I realized there was a budget limitation there, but uh, that, that soundtrack wasn't quite as strong for me, but he enjoys it more than I do, so. Uh, oh, you disagree about the scores? Yeah, the score, the score, no. Is, 
I'm only familiar with the pieces they're redoing from Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> and that great music seems so out of place over such a, you know, basically crappy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it was a, bu a budget concern, which, you know, you go from a bigger uh, a budget to, to what they made to Destroyer, but back then they didn't quite know how to do sequels uh, or probably, you know, maybe they needed to tap a more indie director to make it <laughs> who could be more resourceful. There's there's a moment early in Conan the Destroyer where Valeria has appeared or he's mm -hmm. thinking about her. Oh, it's, it's what sets it up right. where the uh, the evil wizards touches him and says, think Conan. And you see that tight close up of him going, oh, <laughs> all these facial pyrotechnics. That's not a budget issue. <laughs> <laughs> that face is there on his skeleton on his skull, no matter how much the film costs. <laughs> uh you know it, when you have a, a film uh made on the budget or you know working on indie film and that people wear lots of hats uh would you say uh, in your experience did you ever run into a, a problem where someone only wanted to do the one thing and that was it or or uh, are they kind of under the understanding when they come on set that they might need to do more than just uh be there in the in the one role that they're in I think you and I are playing Bizarro Superman tonight because okay. it's just the opposite. Oh, my, okay. my problem is more like people want to do too many things. <laughs> I want to be an actor and I want to do special effects sure. and I want to be a, and I'm just like, you know, calm down, <laughs> find that one thing you're good at for mm -hmm. my film. Anyways, do that one thing. Sure. Um, but I mean, I, I, you know, like I try and encourage young filmmakers. I try and mentor quite a few of them, but sure. I, I just see people all the time saying, well, you know, I'm going to go be a cinematographer on this film and I'm going to be an actor in this <laughs> film. And now I have 75 IMDB credits. And I'm like, listen, it's not about that. Mm -hmm. It's not about doing everything. If, if you don't have to, you know, find some mm -hmm. things you're good at. Yeah. Everyone loves to act. Everyone loves to be on camera. Not me. <laughs> I don't have that desire, but that's that. That's not your. Uh, that's not your ambition to be in front of the camera and. and uh... Look at me! I look like a ghost on this camera. <laughs> do you ever? Do you ever see the Woody Allen movie uh, where he goes to hell and there's that sequence where Robert Robin Williams is out of focus? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's basically me right now on this show. I, I don't know. It's this camera. I'm mostly blue. Yeah. Well, it, it's more of, of what you have to say than than the visuals uh, for for the show. So I'm the mouth. You're the mouth. Of Sauron <laughs> the from mouth. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, you're all you're always working on a. Uh, on films you say you try to make one every two years uh do you get a chance to watch films in between and and have you watched any newer films that stood out for you um listen my my life is watching tv movies mm. tv shows news sure. so i watch movies i watch them all the time i watch them all the time um not always new movies i'm not always sure. up on the newest films the most recent thing that i saw was uh emily the criminal yeah which I wasn't crazy about, even though I liked uh, Audrey Plaza in a lot. Um, and the TV show White Lotus, which I loved. And I think the most recent movie before that was, uh, is it Last Night in Soho? Yeah, Last Night called? in Soho, yeah. I thought I loved it. I thought it was oh. so good. It's <laughs> just the best movie. And I can't wait to watch it again. But well, It's kind of long. And I don't watch long movies over and over too many times unless... <laughs> The, the filmmaker has an Italian name and uh, a woman named Apollonia blows up in a car. <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. Now, I'm glad you mentioned last night. So that was one of my favorite. That was my favorite for that year that came out. It tied with uh, Nicholas Cage's pig. Uh, because those came out the also same very year. Good, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I, I picked up the soundtrack for that one for last night in Soho, and, and I really enjoyed just the visuals and what they did with it. And it was, uh, I was happy to see that uh, that later on the behind the scenes came out with the dance sequence, the first one that you have where they are switching between actresses, that that was done practical. Yeah, I... <laughs> 
<laughs> I watched some of the uh, behind the footage on, on how the big budget mainstream films are done, and, yeah. and I'm pretty stunned at the different things they do. And even when it is practical, though, there's, there's right. other enhancements and just mm-hmm. so much stuff going on. Uh, also, um, I co-run Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival, so I watch... Oh, okay, yeah. You watch a lot of movies. <laughs> I, I watch at least 80 features a year. Somebody sure. else watches the shorts, and then I watch mm-hmm. their selections of the shorts. But, I mean, I watch a lot of indie films every year. Yeah. I I do tend to be behind on whatever horror film has just gone uh, to VOD, mm-hmm. because I'm still used to this uh, routine where... A teaser trailer comes out and then a couple of months later a trailer comes out and then there's a little fuss and the movie comes out these days a trailer comes out and a week later people are saying whether or not they liked or didn't like the film and i'm it it's going too fast for me you know i'm worried about the season finale of this and Mm. (laughs) yeah i've had discussions with folks as well on how the turnaround seen you know the fast turnaround especially in hollywood films it, it it's kind of becoming a bit of a detriment it's starting to show where they crank out a film in 18 months from start to finish with some of these like really large budget films and i'm remembering back in the day as well in the 80s to where you'd had a three-year span before part one if there was going to be a part two <laughs> yeah you know except for back to the future which they shot back to back for for reasons i think budget and also the fact you couldn't quite convinced everyone that michael j fox was a teenager <laughs> anymore but yeah it was probably more of that because the films are so different mm-hmm. with the locations and the settings and stuff i don't know what they saved yeah I, I, i'm not sure either uh you know and when you made slime city the effects you have the practical effects you have in there were just are just amazing for uh, you know, when you when you made it in that, uh, was that most of your budget for back then when you when you made Slime City or was it the film stock? Uh, they're about the same. They're about I the mean, same. saying most of the budget would be overstating it, but sure. a healthy portion of it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was a fifty thousand dollar film and seven thousand was spent on the effects. So one seventh of the budget. Yeah. It, you know, and you could go right away and say another seventh was the. Uh, film and sure. uh developing mm-hmm. and another seventh was the food that we had to eat so i mean it goes fast on a, on a low budget sure. it yeah and with that well of course you got to feed people you don't want to have a starving crew right <laughs> it's the number one rule of low budget filmmaking that no matter what mm-hmm. you feed people on set and i right. did the first film i ever worked on i was a teenage zombie we hardly ever got fed on set. Oh. Yeah, and, uh, a lot of people were not happy about that. <laughs> can I, and then can I... I worked on another film, an awful film called Plutonium Baby, mm-hmm. where on the last day of shooting, they threatened to not feed us. And so we all just threatened not to finish the film. <laughs> and they, you know, reached into their pockets and went to Kentucky Fried Chicken and fed us. At least, at least he got some <laughs> food, Yeah. <laughs> Power, power to the people, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the films I work on, the food's incredible. Sure, uh, they, you know, you get caterers to come and you get have all you want, and it's it's a nice way to break your day up. Oh, I I, I imagine every time I see behind the scenes stuff, I always see that table just full of food of of various oh, yeah. kinds for people. And then at the end mm. of the day, if Sam Qualiana, director of Snow Shark and Legend of Six Fingers, is the production coordinator, that food goes home with him. And he lives <laughs> on it for a week. <laughs> well, you don't want it don't want it to go to waste, right? <laughs> no, you don't. And I've taken some home myself too. But Sam gets it most of the time. He gets first tips. Uh, one of the things uh, we did this year on our podcast was do Horror of 1988, which is a special series we did where we featured films because I noticed just how much horror came out in 1988, along with Slime City. It was like an insane amount. This past year reminded me a bit of that. But, uh, you know, what? how was that for competition for, for horror in 88 when Slime City came out? Was there a, a bit of concern because there was so much or was it? just the opposite since there's so much horror prevalent that it uh maybe brought it more into the light than maybe uh it would have if it wasn't well in 88 we did our our midnight run we played Mm -hmm. for five weeks 
which is just Saturday and Sunday midnight shows, sure. but it sounds good if you say for five weeks. Um, and our international sales guy sold it to a bunch of countries. So it went pretty well for us. Mm-hmm. The bottom was starting to fall out of the market. And mm-hmm. by nine, the time 1989 rolled around, mm-hmm. um, the video market had changed drastically. So we, I think we were, we were basically an 89 release on home video. I think we were really one of the last films of that era to get paid in sure. advance and to get, you know, they sent posters to all the video stores and little standee cards that go yeah. on the counters. And I, I think we were sort of the end of that era. Um, but I will tell you, Mark, all, in all honesty, if we had finished that film one one year earlier, mm-hmm. 1987, you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now <laughs> because I would have had a career and, you know, I would be, uh, be, be... dead or living on an island or... <laughs> So, the subject of what the fuck went wrong with that guy he used to make good movies uh <laughs> we had uh you know you do you do a low budget film and, sure. and this would happen a lot when you shot on film you'd get through editing and you'd run out of money and you'd have mm-hmm. to go out and raise more money and i didn't know rich people you know right. me and my two partners saved our own money and we got our friends and family put it in and what i ended up doing was having uh i showed it to a guy from vestron video and he loved it mm-hmm. And he recommended that they take it. And the figure that had kind of been bandied about was $150,000. And we were just waiting for that offer and contract. I mean, it felt really good. It was going to happen. And at the time, I was managing a movie theater that showed a lot of Vestron movies. They were trying to get into the theatrical business. Big Man on Campus, you remember that? (laughs) Films like that would come for a week, The Unholy, and leave in a week. And they had one bomb after another. And... After I showed this film to him and we got this positive feedback, Dirty Dancing opened. It was their first big hit. Mm-hmm. And that Monday, the word went out, no more low-budget shit. Oh. Oh, oh, man. And it took me longer to find oh. a way to get the money. And it, it, I think it really made a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we would have been released by Vestron Video when they were big and really pushing their horror. And so many more sure. people would have seen it. And you know, they would have wanted something else from me and eh, that's life. <laughs> Wait, you still have, uh, I, I, I love, uh, the, the catalog of films you do have, sir, that you've uh, been involved with. Uh, uh, they're very interesting. I love indie and B horror and genre, uh, just genre films in general. And, uh, I think you have a, a very a fun catalog. So, uh, I, I guess there, there is that though, <laughs> even though you didn't make it, uh, Vestron uh, didn't want to carry your film at that time. Uh, I think still you've got a, a great catalog, a lot of fun. The Guns of Eden is a blast. Uh, would there be possibly a Guns of Eden 2 in the future, or, or are you not too big on sequels? Uh, when I wrote the script, I did not think sequel. Mm-hmm. I know some people think that the open-ended portion of the, mm-hmm. the film is a setup for part two like a cliffhanger and it's not <laughs> that is the definitive ending i had in mind but i have thought since then what i would do in a sequel and if uh uncorked say said hey these countries want to know where part two is we'll give you some money i would do it in a heartbeat <laughs> i would write that sure. script in two weeks and be in production in two months and um but you know that's what has to happen i'm not going to go crowdfund again that is so much work sure. crowdfunding uh, we had a successful campaign. We raised almost a hundred thousand, but that's a lot of work around the clock, day after day, and it's not really fun begging for money. Yeah, and, and I've heard that from some other indie uh, makers, uh, filmmakers as well, that they prefer not to do crowdfunding if at all possible, uh, because yeah. of many different uh, elements. I felt I had to crowdfund this one because. Sure. When I decided to make the movie, the theaters were closed right. and the pandemic had really killed Widow's Point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's tragic what happened to that <laughs> film because of the pandemic. But I couldn't go to investors and say, hey, this is a good time to invest in a movie because right. it was the worst time in modern history to make a movie. Mm-hmm. It was the worst time in the history of movies to make a movie. <laughs> uh, so the only way to make this movie, what I felt, was to, to crowdfund. And sure. we went all out and fortunately was successful. And I think it was successful because of the timing with the pandemic, because mm-hmm. nothing was being shot. I think people were really excited that uh, Crazy Lamberson was going to go out and make not just a low-budget movie, but a low-budget action, action movie. 
I had friends who read that script and they said, you know, how are you going to do this? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, we'll get it done. <laughs> yeah. I got a <laughs> you had a plan and, and you did get it done. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, my final question is, uh, you've been in the business uh, through film and now the surgence of digital and that. Has digital technology and digital shooting made it easier or is it a double-edged sword to where since it's so easy, you have more stuff out there than if you would have, you know, if you still were shooting on film, you know, it's so much out there now that it, the yeah. good stuff gets buried. I mean, uh, that's a, that's a yes and a yes. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it does make things easier. It does make things faster. It does give you a lot more latitude with things you do in post-production, all sorts of advantages to it, but there is a glut in the market and it becomes mm-hmm. harder to separate what aspires to be a professional film and what's just friends getting mm-hmm. together and saying, Hey, let's make our first film for 10,000. We, we can do it. And plenty of those are valid and worthwhile, but there's just so much out there for the distributors to sort through mm-hmm. that there are distributors now that their only interest is having something that they can create a poster for that has nothing <laughs> to do with the movie. Sure. And that that filmmaker has a finished film and has all the paperwork that they need to release it, all the mm-hmm. insurance, everything's in order. As long as that information's there and they have some stills so they can make an awesome poster, that's all they need. And their business model is set up, and this is just the sad truth, that the first fifteen to $25,000 that the film makes goes to the distributor to cover their marketing costs. Well, it's paying their salaries, right. and it's paying their rent, and it's paying mm-hmm. their graphic artists. And the system is really set up so that the filmmaker will never make a dime. Mm. That's what this has evolved, evolved into. And... Uh, well, what about things have to change? <laughs> what about self distribution then, or is that a challenge in its own right? <laughs> it is a challenge in its mm-hmm. own right. I'm I'm working with some guys now who have a, a pretty good plan for a film they're going to do. I'm I'm probably going to be involved as a producer, and I'll, I'll just say that their plan includes having um, local television support to promote the sure. finished film. But you know, the thing is, you can put stuff out there, but if people don't know it's out there, they're right. not going to watch it. And advertising is really expensive. It's the number one expense mm-hmm. that's gone through the roof on big budget films now. I mean, films films never spent half. You know, if yeah. a film costs ten million, they spend another ten million on advertising. That's unrealistic, unbelievable that mm-hmm. so much money is spent on advertising. Yeah, it 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 catches me too. Why why the comic book films and that are they're so bloated in budget when you look at them sometimes you're like where did it oh yeah no a lot of that went to marketing (laughs) yeah Yeah. it has but also those movies are like two and a half hours they've added yeah 20 minutes of story and Mm -hmm. 10 minutes of credits and and you know they used to say that there's a three-act structure to stories Mm -hmm. and then they figured out oh no it's actually four acts with in the middle the hero makes this decision well now movies have become five acts Mm. You know, it builds to an ending, and then that's not really the ending. And then there's another 20 minutes of fighting explosions and cities falling down. And uh, it's it's literally, you know, people dump on Scorsese all the time for his amusement park right. yeah. comparison. But I don't think that's that's accurate. But I do think that these films are movies for 20 minutes, and then mm-hmm. they seem to reach an end. And then they bring in the amusement park ride for the last 20 minutes. It's a, it's a real movie and an amusement park ride. And that's just, <laughs> that's the format they're going to. And the right. studios want to spend mo- money on special effects. They want people mm-hmm. coming into the audience, into the movies to see that stuff. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Avatar, the sequel finally comes out this weekend after so many years. And, yeah. uh, you know, speaking of budgets, uh, I remember when Jim Cameron came out with Titanic, everybody thought it was going to be a flop because it was $200 million. You're like, yeah. no film ever has been this <laughs> expensive. Uh, and it ended up being a hit, but now it's like $200 million. You know, what, what would you be able to do with $200 million? <laughs> Um, Well, I don't think I could live long enough to make 200 movies. Sure. But I could make 200 <laughs> movies <laughs> million i would film i'd form a studio and i'd produce other people's movies and do my own and it's yeah it's crazy i mean two million would be a luxury for me i would love to have two two million i'd love to have one million (laughs) i'd love to have half a million that's what i want for my next film i want half a million half a million 
I'd like to hire a star. And mm -hmm. I've just come to the conclusion that the only way to make money in this business, making independent films, is to make something with enough production value and star value that you will be picked up by a Hulu For sure. a streamer like mm -hmm. that. Um, and I would have said Shutter, but now we know Shutter's kind of balancing on the edge and yeah. may go bye bye. You know, every every evolution in the industry mm -hmm. seems to kick the indies a little harder and a little lower. Yeah. It's just it's the way it is. I, I remember when the big purge or whatever came on Amazon, a number of my friends uh, that I know make indie films, they got hit hard with that where they were starting to remove the indie films from Amazon yeah. or oh, yeah. and you know, it, it is sad. People, I think people think, oh, with the internet and streaming and that, oh, it's got to be a big thing for indie films, but it's, it's not really. <laughs> no, to, to Amazon, it's just free content. Sure. We make more on, on Tubi, not a lot more. Sure. <laughs> um, Killer Rack got pulled from Amazon twice. It's so upsetting. They said it was too porny. <laughs> porny. Porny? Yeah. Is that even a word? Yeah. Wow. It's an Amazon. <laughs> and it's sort of a scam with Amazon because sure. what they do is they, you know, the first hundred thousand views or whatever, mm -hmm. the filmmaker doesn't make any money on. And then sure. it starts making a little, they wait till it gets up to that point and then they get rid of it for objectionable content. It's just a way to get free content. It's, it's awful. Well, uh, the more money selling your ass on two down street. <laughs> <laughs> well with all those challenges what do you recommend to young filmmakers who want to start out who, who want to make legit indie films and and you know uh, try to establish themselves what what's a, a piece of advice would you give them i think most of them make the right decision and go into a different line of work <laughs> really you know when i worked in new york city i worked for a lot of video stores and sure. indie theaters and i was uh, usually a manager and I was surrounded mm -hmm. by these kids who were like the hipster kids who <laughs> had rich parents, but they were pretending to be down, you know, while they were in the city. Right. All of them were film experts and stuff. And you know, as soon as they graduated, they went into advertising or whatever. So it was <laughs> such a, such a production. <laughs> well, uh, I thank you, Greg, for taking time to talk today. This has been wonderful uh to finally meet you i've watched a number of your films over the years and and to finally get to meet you is an honor sir uh really uh and uh where can people follow you uh to keep up on the projects that you got going on um you know i have a facebook page mm -hmm. personal page and a author and filmmaker page i am on twitter that's about it mm -hmm. um if you want to follow my wife and daughter pretending to be me on instagram you can do that too <laughs> You've got a good, so you got good social media manager then is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how to get on the Instagram. So they, sure. they handle that. <laughs> and, and I guess what's next for, for Greg, uh, for crazy Lamberson, uh, what, what's next on the docket? I believe there is a uh, distribution deal coming for showdown in yesteryear, the mm -hmm. wonderful fantasy Western that I got to write that they did a great job with producing and directing Deborah Lambs in that, mm -hmm. uh, Vernon Wells. Um, I believe I will be uh, producing a film this winter, which is a comedy, and I'm still trying to get my werewolf film made. I've got somebody, I've got somebody out looking for the bucks. We'll see how it goes. And while he's doing that, I have some special effects guys uh, working on some effects in advance. You know, so hopefully we can start showing people stuff. Uh, and, and that's exciting because I don't think we have enough werewolf films out there. It's surprisingly. Uh, vacant area in the genre for for werewolf films there's a there's a couple of good looking indie ones coming mm -hmm. up one's called howl and i i forgot what the other one's called but there are a couple coming up and sure. i hope they're good because i enjoy mm -hmm. them uh they won't be as good as mine's going to be if it ever gets made, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> but yeah there's there's some out there well, I, we look forward to hopefully uh, you getting the werewolf film off the ground. And uh, I'd love to have you back sometime uh, if uh, we can make it work uh, to talk to you again when that comes out. Uh, you know my manager's number. <laughs> I do indeed. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I've enjoyed this, Mark. As you say, we haven't spoken before. And uh, obviously, we're both Facebook friends and B-movie supporters. And glad you do what you do. Oh, well. 
Thank you, sir. And I'm glad you do what you do because it provides me with uh, many hours of entertainment. So, Thank you. <laughs> so there you go, folks. Guns of Eden out now. Check it out. It's it's so worth it. So much fun. Uh, and yeah, keep an eye out for more stuff. And if you haven't seen Killer Rack either, go see that. Get, see, right. Watch that. That's that's just a whole different level of of crazy. <laughs> now it now it's on Tubi. And it's Amazon on Tubi now. Yeah. Now it is. So. Yeah, which which has just a wild library of stuff right now. It's uh, crazy. It what's really on TV. is like a video store. It is. It, it it reminds me of spend old so school. much time mm-hmm. looking for stuff because you know they, it's great that they put all these films on, but usually when the micro budget horror films come on, mm-hmm. they don't like feature them in a new release section. So you still literally have to arrow through two hundred video box covers, you know, cyber yeah. video box covers before you find. Your own film, let's say, or just randomly pick one too. It's it's a good good yeah. spot for that. Like the old school, when I'd go to the video store, occasionally go to the horror section and go, "Oh, that looks good." You just <laughs> grab whichever one you want. So, all right, sir. Well, uh, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, folks, uh, check out all that great stuff. 